the Anchorage Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. My name is Bill Hall, and I'll be facilitating this morning. We have two services every Sunday, the second one being a worship service, so you're all invited to attend that one uh, after you've uh, enjoyed this one. So to begin with, let's light the chalice. We hallow this time together by lighting this chalice and opening our hearts to one another and to the world. Do we have any announcements? morning. So the first announcement is that this is our fifth annual alternative gift fair next Sunday, December 10th from 945 to 1245 in our newly painted social room. And the gift fair offers an opportunity, a simple way to spread holiday cheer without adding to holiday clutter. There will be representatives of eight important uh, charities, causes that will be here offering you an opportunity to make a no donation and then receive a festive tag or bookmark to let someone you love know that you made a donation in their honor. Charities represented this year are Identity, Planned Parenthood, Our Own Peace Camp, the UUSC Disaster Relief Fund, Anchorage Literacy Program, Alaska Innocence Project, the Anchorage Waterways Council, and the Center for Public Integrity. Just think of who on your list would be delighted with a thoughtful donation in their name in lieu of more stuff. <coughs> and now for the stewardship moment. I am from a small family. I just have one beloved big brother, and he spent his career in fundraising for hospitals, for universities, and for community foundations. He's really good at it, and he enjoys it, which to me just proves that genetics have limits, because I hate fundraising. I do. But I love AUUF. I love the forum. I love that this year I've had my brain and my heart stimulated by talks from the British Consul from one of my favorite authors, Aylan Ivy, from the owners of Tidal Wave, and next week it'll be our own Eric Hill. I also love the chance to sing at the 11 o'clock service. I love that one of my daughter's favorite memories is watching the northern lights reflected in the lake at Fall Frolic. I love the opportunities I've had to volunteer in meaningful ways and the people I've gotten to know. And that's it. That's why I pledge. I hope you have your own list, too, of things that you love about this place. And I hope that you'll also join me in pledging generously this year. Thank you. Well, as most of you know, we have a 45-minute presentation, give or take a little bit, and a 30-minute audience questions. Uh, I'll try to manage the time and the talking. And you might notice that uh, Cookie Monster isn't with us today. I forgot and left him home, so I borrowed this off the table there. So if we need it, we've got it. I'm not sure exactly who or what this is, but he's cute. Can we turn our cell phones off? Well, our 
our guest this morning, or our speaker this morning, isn't really a guest. He's a member of the of the Unitarian Fellowship, and and I, I believe doesn't really require any introduction other than to say we're very fortunate to have Representative Matt Clayman here this morning. Please join me in welcoming him. Thanks, Bill. I, I'm here to talk about improving public safety and what's been going on in the legislature for the last few years. But, but last night, in light of current political events, I got a got a text from a friend who sent a cartoon along, and I won't try to show you the cartoon, but I will. It, the The headline of the cartoon says "Senate GOP meeting this morning," and then the text of it reads. I have to blow this up. Uh, before we discuss raising taxes on the poor and middle class, adding $1 trillion to the deficit, taking health insurance away from $13 million, raising premiums by 10%, defending treason, and swearing in a pedophile, let's begin with a prayer. <laughs> anyway, that was my thought about what we probably needed to start this service with. It was a prayer, but we had one as part of the lighting the chalice. And... The topic really this morning is public safety improvement in Alaska and what's been going on for the last several years, which really began with the passage of Senate Bill 64 in 2014, which actually occurred before I was elected to serve in the House. And and the setting of what led to the passage of Senate Bill 64 really began in 1980 um, with the with the what kind of began this national effort to get tougher on crime and to begin a war on drugs. And that really came about with a number of different things. The first was there were longer and longer prison sentences. There was more and more money being spent on corrections and the need for corrections on a national basis. And what we started seeing over time was an increased racial disparity in our jail population. I think it existed before 1980, but it got more so. And on a national level, that was a disproportionate impact on African Americans, and here in Alaska, it's been a disproportionate impact on Alaska Natives. So the question is, what are the things? What are the, some of the things we can show for all this effort—the war on drugs and the effort of getting tough on crime—that started in the 1980s? Well, the United States is now the highest per capita incarceration rate in the in the world. For 100,000 people, according to Wikipedia, we've got about 693 people per 100,000 in prison. And second place, a relatively distant second place, is Russia with 450. It's, it's good company we keep in locking people up. In 2008, the New York Times is reporting that the United States has 5% of the world's population and almost 25% of the world's prisoners. So that's what we've been getting with this war on drugs and getting tough on crime. And the question we have to ask ourselves, is it working is it worth the price that we're paying? And probably the most important question, which is the question I keep asking myself in Juneau, is it improving public safety? And on the most basic level, we can say that it's not working, and this, the, the short answer to look at that is to look at how the war on drugs has worked, and the, the quickest look is the opioid crisis and the overdose drug deaths on a national level since 1999, the overdose deaths have increased fourfold while the war on drugs has continued. 
So since 2000, as people started figuring out, maybe this isn't the best idea, maybe we don't like it so well, there have been a number of things that you can see going on on a national level, and these things were all going on at the time that discussions started here in Alaska about what are we doing and could we do it better. Examples include the Federal Fair Sentencing Act in 2010, and the big thing on that was they reduced the sentencing disparity between crack cocaine and powder cocaine, which this is way in the weeds, but the, the disparity was about 100 to 1 between crack cocaine and powder cocaine, and of course that impacted poor populations far more than middle class and upper middle class populations, and the Sentencing Act of 2010 reduced that from 100 to 1 to 18 to 1. Again, recognizing that what we were doing was locking people up, but it wasn't working. In Wyoming, they were very concerned with their recidivism rate. It's a common discussion. The national recidivism rate, basically people who are in jail and then within three to four years are back in jail on a new offense, about the same as Alaska running 66%. Wyoming, another very populous, fairly large landmass state, made a big effort towards requiring people in prison to either get their GED or finish high school. They'd have high school programs in prison so they'd actually get a high school diploma while in prison. Wyoming's recidivism rate today is about 25%, one of the lowest in the country. That's what was going on in Wyoming. North Carolina, they discovered that they had almost no one that were, they didn't have a very active probation and parole supervision program, so what they, they engaged in was a process in of increasing the funding and increasing the number of parole and probation officers and being more aggressive in how they, how they supervise folks on parole and probation because what they figured out, it's actually cheaper to have somebody in the community getting supervised by a probation officer than actually in jail with a bed, probably not learning a whole lot. And in a three-year period, North Carolina reduced their prison population by 8%. Reduced probation revocation cases, meaning saying they'd done something wrong and bringing them back to jail because they were monitoring people more carefully. They reduced their probation revocation cases by 50%, and they closed 10 prisons. Kentucky implemented a program that used an actuarial, actuarial method, sort of like what they used to figure out your car insurance rates, to assess the risk of failing to appear for court or committing a new criminal offense while awaiting trial. And that also included more intensive supervision by pretrial correction officers, and that actually reduced the, the failure to appear and new criminal offenses to less than 10 percent, which when you look at the Alaska rate, we, we have about a 37 percent new offense statistic when people are out uh, awaiting trial. And if you could get that below 10 percent, that's almost that's more than a threefold improvement in public safety. Uh, the one that we hear most about in the news is Texas. They passed comprehensive justice reform changes in 2006 and 2007. They reduced sentences for nonviolent offenders. They increased the number of people released on parole and probation. They made parole and pr probation supervision more intensive. They mo added more drug treatment beds in prison. They added more substance abuse treatment slots for outpatient and out-of-prison folks. Uh, and they actually have closed already four prisons. And interestingly enough, in Texas, when this was going on, you hear a lot of different things. But I had the benefit of being at a national conference recently on public safety. And one of the things we, I learned from the folks in Texas was they did two things. They said to the public, well, we kind of have two choices. We can try to reduce the number of prison beds and engage in this prison or this justice reform effort, 
or we can build more prisons. And the same year, they actually put a bond on the ballot that gave them the money to build three more prisons. So the public had voted for this bond, but they didn't really want the state to spend the money. And so there was this general sense about, okay, we're, if it really gets bad, we'll let you build the prisons, but we can do better, and they figured out a way to do that. So that lay the framework for 2014 in Alaska, and that's where you get to your, that's where you get to your handout. In 2014, uh, what we knew is that since 1986, violent crime had been gradually increasing, which is on the first page, the chart on the right. And at the same time that violent crime was gradually increasing, which is really what the public, I think, becomes most concerned about, and legitimately so, uh, overall the crime rate was declining. So, so that's kind of an interesting juxtaposition about how, how are we getting a declining overall rate while we're getting increased violent crime. And I think the answer is that the economy was doing fairly, fairly well, and we see broadly that when the economy does well, crime tends to decline because more people have work and more people have jobs, and so it tends to drive less people into committing criminal offenses. But the other thing that we were seeing, particularly from 2005 to 2014, which is on the second page of the two-sided handout, is that Alaska's prison population had grown 27 percent from 20, 2005 to 2014, and that's three times the rate that the population was growing. So we have a 9 percent population growth during that period and a 27 percent prison growth population. We knew that two out of three inmates who were released after their term, and 95 percent of people who go to jail eventually get out of jail, we knew that two out of three were coming back to jail within three years because they were committing new offenses. We knew that based on those growths of the prison population, we had just finished building the Goose Creek Prison. We we're going to have to build another one, and so the, the likely new prison would have to be built in the mid-2020s, perhaps as early as 2024. We had growing concerns, which are still true today, about reduced oil production, lower oil prices, the, the, the significant reduction of state revenue from oil taxes, and there was an awareness in 2014 that we had a looming financial challenge and financial crisis, which is still going on today. And there was general recognition that what we were doing wasn't working. So that led folks in the legislature to start talking about what are we going to do to get make things better. Um, interestingly enough, our Constitution has, has a lot of direction about that. We have for criminal administration, they actually have six things that are that the, that the legislature and the governor and the court system is asked to look at when we're talking about public safety and criminal administration. The need for protecting the public, community condemnation of the offender, the rights of victims of crimes, restitution for the offender, and the principle of reformation. And I think what the public keeps, keeps saying to the legislature, they said it in 2014, although I wasn't there, but I've certainly been hearing it again and again during the time I've been serving. They want the, the legislature to be tough on violent crime. They want us to be smart on spending and use scarce government dollars wisely, and they want us to constantly be looking for ways to improve public safety. And so in 2014, that was the really, really beginning of what is, I think, an ongoing and multi-year effort to improve public safety. We knew that we had a choice between trying some innovative methods or doing the same thing again and again and hoping for change. Now, 
I'm kind of a fan of innovation. I've, I've been a long believer in seat belts. Airbags seem to do pretty well when we hear about accidents. Anti-lock brakes, every time it's a little icy and I put the brakes on a little hard, I discover that anti-lock brakes actually work. And uh, I'm kind of reminded of Vincent Larry, who we might remember from the 1980s and the 1990s, the crash test dummies, and they would say, you can learn a lot from a dummy. But that's what innovation is about. Few of us would argue about the benefits of, of medical innovation. Polio vaccine has virtually eradicated the disease. We all know someone who's had heart, heart bypass surgery and got a new lease on life. And I think few of us have made it through our lives without having, having taken an antibiotic or other medication to treat something like pneumonia. And that doesn't even go down the most, most apparent technological innovations that we deal with every day, personal computers, mobile phones, and the Internet. So in 2014 in Senate Bill 64, Alaska made a commitment to a fact-based process for how we're going to improve public safety. And that the, the first and foremost was to create a criminal justice commission that was, that was assigned or tasked with conducting research and making research-based recommendations and sending those recommendations to the legislature and to the governor and to the court system. And this was, a, this was a, in theory, and has, has, as best we can make it in practice, a rational process to improve our criminal justice system. It was recognition that doing the same thing again and again wasn't working. And violent crime was increasing, and we had to do better. It was recognition about the growth in prison population, three times the population growth, and it was recognition of the recidivism rate. So that led in 2016 to the oftentimes, uh, you hear different things about it, but the, the passage of Senate Bill 91. And Senate Bill 91 was a 125 piece of legislation page piece of legislation, and, and it was complex. And you would expect it 125 pages. If it wasn't complex, Lord knows what we were saying for 125 pages because that's a lot. And there, there are three phases to, to what was enacted in Senate Bill 91, and a lot of that is, I think, not always super well understood. But three, three phases were a pretrial phase, a sentencing phase, and a probation and parole phase of the implementation of these, of these efforts to improve public safety and a recognition that we can do better. So the first phase that took, that took effect was the sentencing phase that took effect almost immediately after passage of the, of the law in 2016. And there were a number of key features to the sentencing phases. The first and foremost was that we actually increased sentences, the minimum sentences for murder one and murder two. And that was a recognition that the public, while wanting to see us use our, our, criminal, our criminal administration dollars wisely, they did not want to see us go lighter on the most violent crimes. And so the increase on the mandatory minimum sentences on murder one and murder two were recognition that these were crimes that we still weren't crazy about having folks that committed those crimes out in the community. Another feature of the 2016 law was was to create probation-only sentences for first-time nonviolent Class C felony offenders. Now, felonies are the most serious crimes, and they, we actually have a kind of a pyramid scheme for, for how you classify felonies. So the most serious felonies, which were the unclassified felonies, would be at the top of the pyramid, and there are actually not that many crimes that, that, that meet 
the definition of an unclassified felony. So murder one and murder two aren't unclassified felonies. The more serious sexual assault crimes, kidnapping, those are the examples of, of, of unclassified felonies that tend to have the longest sentences. Then you have class A felonies below that. The class A felonies, again, more than unclassified, but not as many as class B and class C felonies. Uh, that would be the first-degree assault, some of the more, more serious harm, but not as serious as the unclassified felonies. Then you go down another level to Class B felonies. For example, the highest seriousness theft offense, theft in the first degree, is a Class B felony that has a zero to ten-year sentence range, and there's more Class B felonies than Class A felonies. And then the largest number of felonies are the Class C felonies, and that, that includes a lot of uh, theft, but not the most serious theft. Car theft is a Class C felony. So there's a range. Uh, assault in the third degree is a Class C felony. So these are all instances of crimes that they still have a very serious sentence of up to five years, but they're not as serious as the Class A's, the Class B's, and the unclassifieds. And so the effort with the Class C felonies, because we discovered that people that went to jail for a short time actually are more, more likely to come out with bad habits than if they were strictly on probation. And so there was an effort to try to get first-time offenders with no criminal history out and not having time in prison where they, there was evidence to show that you actually significantly increased the likelihood that you would engage in criminal behavior the more often you spent long periods of time in jail. So that was another feature of the 2016 legislation. Another feature was on petty thefts that and petty theft is under $250, and that's shoplifting, essentially, that there would be no active jail time and probation only for the first two offenses for petty theft. Another key feature was they reduced all drug possession offenses, and thinking of more hardcore drugs, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, simple possession, not trafficking in those drugs, but possession of those drugs, the that was, they were reduced from felonies to misdemeanors so that the maximum sentence would be one year in jail for, for basically drug use but not trying to sell drugs. And that, that was a major change in terms of the approach to, to dealing with people who have addiction problems. And it, was, it recognized a public value that locking people up with addiction problems wasn't helping them get over their addiction problems and was costing us more and more money. And then the other thing that... Uh, that we did was reduced the, the presumptive sentencing range on all felonies for on most felonies except the most violent felonies uh, so that the actual range of incarceration a person faced even for repeat offenders was lower than than had been the case before passage of the bill that was all what took place in 2016 phase two of the justice reform effort was were probation and parole changes and those started taking effect in January of 2017 and there were a number of key features that were part of the probation and parole effort. The first was to try to as systematically get more folks that were in jail into the applying to get released on probation and trying to get them released on parole so that they're out of prison and being supervised by probation officers. The second was to change how probation and parole took about supervising folks because the recognition was, again, in the first three to six months, that's the time when people most often violate their conditions of probation and parole. And the idea was that you would have more intensive supervision in that early period, and if folks did well, then you would decrease supervision, and you would hopefully get compliance even though not without as much supervision. 
The second part was they created incentives. You know, we all talk about incentives, the carrot and stick approach. But in probation and parole, there's not a lot of room to come up with incentives. But one incentive that we came up with was a credit that if you actually have good behavior on probation release, for every 30 days of good behavior, you reduce your total probation period by 30 days. So it was, uh, it's called a earned compliance credit, another one of those policy womp words. And it would be a 30 days reduction for each 30 days. So for example, if you have two years on probation and you do well for the first year at the end of that year, you will have earned basically the whole second year off and then you're released and you're no longer supervised. And that was an effort to both focus the attention on the first period of time and when somebody's doing well, stop spending money on them and just have those folks be a statistic by the probation officers. Uh, the other thing was that we increased authority for probation officers to revoke people that are committing violations, in particular on technical violations. It allowed probation officers, and today they can, they can pull somebody in and say, you're in violation, but their limit on how many days they can pull them back in. And so for a, what's called a technical violation, you can bring a probationer in for three days or the second time for five days and the last time for seven days. And it's part of this intensive management in the first in the first three to six months to say, okay, you're not going to your AA classes on Friday afternoons, so you can come spend three days in jail as a reminder that we're serious about this. And if that, if that works, what you'll actually see is you'll actually see an increase in technical violations, which is what probation officers are using to bring folks in, and a decrease